Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. My name is Indy, and the gentleman next to me, I know you can't see him because if you listen to the podcast, but that's Mr. Jay Powell from Powell Group Consulting, and welcome to Indie Game Business. And also, gentlemen, if you could unmute your mics in Discord so everyone can hear, that'd be amazing. Today, we've got Edward Moore, and we're talking about UX and user testing. But first off, I really would love to thank Tripwire Presents for sponsoring Indie Game Business. Thank you so much. It is an honor and a privilege. I'll let Edward tell him about you. I'll let Jay ask some questions, and then you can find out who this Edward Edward Cat is here. I, I, I just want to stay, start off with one. Yes, thank you, Tripwire Presents. Dan appreciates you all covering his salary. Um, the other thing is, Shell Wong, if you're out there listening, we still love the theme song. Shell did our theme song for us a, a year or so ago, and she did a fantastic job, and I still like bob my head to it you know, when it gets started as, as Edward probably was looking at me going, what the hell is wrong with that guy? Um, but anyway, I was looking at discord, but you're good now. Oh, okay. So you didn't <laughs> see me like bobbing my head along with the music. So, um, Edward, we're talking about UX and UI design today, but let's start at the beginning. Um, you've been in the industry as long as I have. And so it's always fun when I get to interview, I don't know, peers. Yeah. Who are, people we who have equivalent amounts of gray in our beards. So. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, <laughs> tell us how you originally got into the industry and give us an idea of what you all do now. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. For sure. No, uh, uh, Andrew from Tripwire just chimed in on YouTube and thanked himself. So, yeah. That is <laughs> All right, I'll just get started. So, um, yeah, I'm from I'm from back east originally. I was uh, born in New Jersey, grew up outside Boston, went to school in New York, uh, and I went to Hofstra University, got a computer science degree because I wanted to be a game designer. Um, back then, they didn't have like you know DigiPen Full Sail, you know all these uh, you know game design programs. So I figured, hey, I'll just do the next hardest thing which is programming. And I figured that'll, that'll get my way in. Um, I was lucky enough to get my first gig working as a level designer on a PlayStation one title from Sunsoft called monkey magic. Uh, and I worked on that at a small company in New York city. Um, after that, I, uh, spent, um, I actually spent that summer learning half the original half-life engine and got a job at irrational games in Boston. Uh, we kind of in their sort of like post-system shock to pre-Bioshock period. Uh, I worked with them for a little bit. Um, and then I moved out to California where I joined EA and uh, I did level building on some of the Medal of Honor expansion packs, uh, Medal of Honor Allied Assault specifically. Um, and then I first kind of started getting into UI UX uh, they didn't call it UI UX back then, but um, when uh, I was working on Medal of Honor Pacific Assault and I was the lead multiplayer designer on that game and we, they didn't really have, you know, multiplayer games, of course, have lots of complex interfaces, lobbies, matchmaking, you know, persistence tracking, unlocking, all that stuff. Um, so leaderboards, et cetera. So somebody had to design it. So I designed it and um, that led to me being the sort of UI designer specialist on Battle for Middle Earth 2. Um, and then 
uh, you know, after that, I worked at Pandemic Studios. I worked on Mercenaries, kind of left UI UX for a little bit at that time. And then um, I went to Spark Unlimited, work on Lost Planet 3, actually. Um, and I was the lead UI, uh, lead UX designer on that, as well as the lead multiplayer designer on that. I worked uh, with uh, Big Red Button on Sonic Boom in kind of a similar role. And then after that, uh, I made a conscious decision that I was going to freelance. Um, and at that time, like VR was really starting to blow up uh, here in the LA startup community. And a lot of people in my network were migrating to that. So that kind of brings me sort of to the present day, which is I, I do, um, you, you know, UX design for, um, I've, I've done UX design for VR, AR projects, games, AAA games, non-AAA games. Uh, you know, most recently I went back to uh, EA uh, Dice and I worked on Battlefield Five and Jedi Fallen Order doing UX design there. Uh, and uh, so that's just kind of like a rough, you know, uh, rundown of where I am and what I'm doing. It, it, so I, I love the fact that you know, you're doing the, the freelance stuff because I think whether the world wants to admit it or not, you know, we've talked about ageism on this industry. It is harder for people like you and I to get jobs at traditional companies because, you know, people look at us and go, oh, they're too expensive, you know, or they're not going to work the 80, 90 hour weeks that, we, you know, we expect other people to work. But through we were joking right before we went live about how, you know, when we first started back in the late 90s, UX wasn't even a thing or it was a thing, but it wasn't something that everybody looked at, you know, completely different than than UI. So one, let's start with what's the difference between the two? Because obviously bigger companies, you're going to have specialists that are more on the UI side and some are on the UX side. But let's start at the very beginning. What What is UI? What is UX? Where are they different? So the, the metaphors I like to use are if you think about a car like snazzy sports car right and it's got like all like the the racing stripes it's got the color that you like it's got the spoiler it's got the rims all that stuff but you think about that versus the fundamentals of you know the chassis of the car you know the the transmission the wheels you know the, the stick shift um the gas pedal all that stuff the chassis and the fundamentals of the car that is ux it is how the thing works um, the thing is, is when you go buy a car, you don't, you wouldn't drive a chassis. It would be just empty and boring and unsafe, actually. And all those things I talked about earlier, like, you know, the color of the car, the shape, the paint job, you know, the interior finishes, all that stuff, that brings the emotion, that brings the appeal. Um, so in my mind, that's kind of like the difference between UX and UI. Um, maybe for some people that do level design uh, out there, I used to do level design way back when, but um like UX is kind of like if you do block out or white boxing of a level and uh, like UI is when like the environment artist comes in and makes it believable, makes it real, makes it uh, has all the po the polish and the touches that really just add that just just make you make you really love using it or interacting with it. So how has that evolved over the last 20, 25 30 years inside of games it's definitely become a lot more sophisticated and there's a more of a mature understanding of you know what the difference between the two is it's it's still evolving but but basically you're starting to see more dedicated ux designers inside the games industry i do not consider myself a ui designer i can do bits of graphic design here and there but I really, I'm much more interested in making something work and finding people that are really have the passion for all the emotional details, like like the line thickness or the color, the perfect color or the perfect icon. Um, you know, I, I like to kind of be like more strategic, and because I have a background in game design, like I like to kind of work with you know the game designers or the systems designers that are coming up with all of the ideas for how the game should actually play. So in terms of how things have changed in the industry, um, that distinction is has become a lot more clear. And a lot, a, lot, a lot of people are also now kind of understanding that UX is also, there's a psychological aspect to user experience that also touches on user testing and research and understanding how 
people's brains process information cognitively in different ways. So there's a much more kind of robust understanding of that now. And also what's been really great too is that there's just a plethora now of, of websites that are repositories of different games that you can go to online now. And you can just like look up uh, uh, you know, a specific game or even like, for example, like, hey, I wanna see a matchmaking lobby or I wanna see an inventory screen. And it'll spit out like dozens of screens that all kind of fit that criteria. And that's essential for doing like competitive or comparative analysis or research. That crap didn't exist back when you and I started <laughs> in this. You know, it's just like you had to go and take the screenshots yourselves. I mean, even as recent as like, you know, maybe 10, 10, eight to 10 years ago, that didn't exist. And so that's what's really great now is that like there's a lot more under like broader understanding of and the practice of UX is becoming more sophisticated. And people are realizing, you know, and the tools are getting better too. I mean, you've got tools like Figma and Adobe XD and, and they allow you to do just do gamepad prototyping, you know, right in the tool. So it almost can kind of like, you can, you can create a flow, a number of screens or test out variations on a feature without even touching a line of code. Um, so that, so these things are all just, you know, ways that the practice of UX and games has become uh, a lot more sophisticated and, and, and mature in recent years. And, and I know the site that you're talking about, and it's literally called like UX repository or. What's there's a couple, couple of them. There's game UI database is a big one. I, I don't have my bookmarks handy to give shout outs, but. I think that's the one that I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like game, something very basic and to the point. So, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's another one that's like you. I want to say it's like UI and games or, or something like that. I'm totally botching it. So. But uh, it, they're out there, so um, and, and it's great that we have resources like that. They're they're just really awesome when you're just trying to wrap your head around a feature. And and a lot of times, what happens is people's gut reaction is like, well, well, what are we? What are other games doing? You know, and it's just like you could just click and just find it rather than having to go, you know dig out your game library and sit in front of a TV with a camera or, or whatnot. So and it's, it's extremely valuable to indie devs because a lot of these games, you know, your these examples that are coming up when you do these searches are from, you know, huge AAA publishers, you know, multi-million dollar games that these things are based on. And trust me, those companies do a shitload of research and testing mm -hmm. on all of this stuff. And indie teams don't have that, you know, ability mm -hmm. with, you know, the resources to do that. So, these are really good ways to go in and kind of cheat off somebody else's paper to make sure that all your stuff is in there. Because, I mean, we all know from being gamers, too, there's absolutely nothing more infuriating than going in and having a wonky UI and, and user experience when you're trying to play. It'll completely turn everybody off. Yeah. So from the indie team point of view and, you know, small studios, less than 20 people, obviously not having the resources to have one dedicated, you know, UI UX. So what are some of the most important things that teams need to keep in mind and how does that vary from platform to platform? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, for me, there's no, there's no uh, user experience without users, right? So for me, the testing is critical because um, in game development, we are making assumptions on behalf of an audience, which we think they may be like us or they may think or feel like us or be into the things that we're into, but that's not necessarily true. Um, so I think it's, it's crucially important to have a feedback loop in place where you're taking your, your game and you're putting it out there and uh, whether it's through things like platforms like itch.io or um, other other means of you know uh, you know Steam early access things like that, um, it's really important to make sure that you're validating your assumptions about what the experience should be, how the interface should behave with actual user data. And the user data can kind of fall into two different camps. On one on one side, there's qualitative data, which is you know things like thoughts, feelings, sentences, opinions, right? And then there's quantitative data, which is numbers, facts, 
yes, no, true, false, one to 10, right? Um, and the difference is it's, it's important to kind of, when you're constructing like a, uh, what we call like a, a protocol or a script to get information from people, like you should absolutely like use surveys, mix and match quantitative, qualitative questions, um, and just, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you're cause, like you're using both of them because quantitative questions are good when you have lots of users because then you can have statistical validity. Think like you've got like uh, you're, you've shared a bunch of beta codes out and you've got like, you know, 100 people that are playing your game. Well, then you should include some quantitative things, you know, those true, false, zero to 10, uh, et cetera, type things, uh, because then it will have statistical validity. But the thing is, is that quantitative information really kind of only gets to what users are doing. It doesn't get to why they're doing it. And so if you want to get to the why, that's where you kind of need the qualitative things, which are things like interviews, um, watching somebody play test your game in person and possibly even recording it and getting them to say their thoughts as they're going through. Like those two, those are just kind of like the tip of the iceberg of various different forms of testing and research that you can do for, for games. Um, and I think it's crucially important for people to keep that in mind because I think when people lump UX and UI together, that's the part of UX that they kind of don't think about. And that's what's really important. The way I like to look at it is like, that's like an insurance policy to make sure that your game that you're making is aligning with user expectations um, and is just providing like a really intuitive frictionless experience. So in terms of things to keep in mind between PC, console, mobile, obviously you're dealing with different controls, your different screen sizes, all this sort of stuff. What are some of the the core differences, the best practices, and, and what sorts of things just kind of like span over all three of them? Great question. So um, with, it usually has a lot to do with just screen density. And if you think about, you know, uh, how big things are on screen, how many things that you put on the screen uh, with mobile devices, obviously, you know, you're dealing with just kind of like a, one, one and a half foot experience, right? Like the phone is just a couple, you know, so close to your face, relatively speaking. Uh, whereas like PC is kind of like more medium range. That might be like, you know, one to two, maybe three feet, depending on how big your monitor is. Whereas like console games, I tend to think of that as like the 10 foot living room experience, right? You've got like a, depending on the size of your room and how much wall space that you have, you know, you might be sitting on a couch six to 10 feet away. So, um, and in addition to that, you also have to think about what's the precision of the input and what are the different types of input and the constraints that you have. With a phone, you know, you've just got your sausage fingers and, you know, so that's why buttons need to be kind of big and chunky on phone. And you can't put lots of like kind of tiny fiddly things because then, you know, your fingers, it does a bad job of interpreting what exactly that you're, you're putting in. Mouse, on the other hand, is a very high precision device. Um, so that's why PC only games tend to be very dense. They tend to have a lot of like, you know, information on screens, they look like spreadsheets, they and that lends itself to more like simulator type of games that um, uh, are made more possible. And I would say console kind of like splits the difference between the two. Um, my number one advice for if you're an indie dev, and you're making a game that's going to be on uh, PC and console is designed for gamepad first uh, because gamepad it just it has a lot more restrictions and conventions in terms of how you navigate screens and how many inputs that you have um, whereas like because you have a mouse and keyboard on pc it's just a lot more liberating in terms of like hey i can just put buttons everywhere and i can click everything and i can use all the keyboard buttons and everything will be just fine and the problem is, is that if you start with pc and then you go to gamepad console that will be a very difficult transition to kind of shoehorn in and get everything to work. Whereas if you start with GamePad, because there are more constraints, and then go to PC, it's much easier to adapt your, your flows and your screens to that. So that, that would be like a big recommendation and thing I would encourage people in your audience to keep in mind when they're, when they're designing um, these types of uh, experiences. So I mean, 
I think that's immensely interesting because you see things now like Crusader Kings going to console. And when mm-hmm. I first saw that announcement, I was like, how in the living hell are they going to <laughs> pull, the, pull this off? Because that is not a controller friendly game. But how did they, they pull did. it off? Um, a lot of very contextual stuff. And it does help too that, you know, even in the years since you and I have been doing this, controllers have a shitload more buttons than they used to have. You this know, is true. Especially when you think about when we were growing up, you know, the Atari had one button, that was it. Mm-hmm. And and now yeah. there's all kinds of, it's, it, there's a lot of, it is more intuitive than I thought it was going to be. I'll put it that yeah. way when it comes but to But still, I, I, I would say the majority, like I think a, like a good 75% of the interactions that you're doing are just on, you know, D-pad A and B, yeah. you know, or circle cross, you know, like it, it's, um, you know, and you have to think about that. You have to think about also frequency of functions. Like you want to make sure your your uh, most highest frequency functions are the most intuitive. Uh, whereas like things that you're doing less frequently, that's the kind of thing you might put on a Y button or you might put on, you know, the triggers uh, or something like that. Um, so you kind of have to also think about, you know, making sure that your most frequently used things are the most easily accessible from like your default hand position and then kind of prioritize and map your other functions appropriately based on how frequently they're used. So, I mean, and that leads into another good question on, you know, accessibility is a huge thing, you know, Mm -hmm. especially since, you know, with Microsoft coming out with that, you know, accessibility adaptive controller several years ago, Mm -hmm. which is just in my mind, a ridiculous game changer. But, how do you start planning for, for that aspect of UX when you're looking at a controller versus, you know, a, a standard controller versus, you know, a mouse and keyboard versus, you know, the Microsoft thing? I mean, you mentioned you want the stuff that you do the most often to be the easiest, but what other things do you have to think through to make it from a core standpoint make sense, but then also to plan ahead for, you know, accessibility options? I, that's a great topic to bring up because that's also feeds back into what we were talking about earlier about how UX has also matured recently. And an area where that's happened is in uh, accessibility. And what's really great about it is that there's accessibility covers a broad like spectrum of different types of, um, you know, impairments or people having uh, different means of perceiving. It's like, it, it covers like, motor, sensory, cognitive, like, um, and and even like, you know, being able to customize like even or adapt the difficulty of the game. Um, And so I think that the companies that um, you have, like, what do you have to do to keep that in mind ahead of time? Um, I think it's it's really challenging because there's a, a ton of different types of audiences that you can make these changes to that will broaden the appeal. Like, for example, you could at menu narration, right? So uh, one of the things that blew my mind when I was at uh, EA, um, the second time when I was working on on, on Battlefield and, and Jedi Fallen Order was that, uh, you know, you can play, blind people can play Madden. You know, it's because they have all the menus are narrated and, and the gameplay is narrated. And that, I just think that's amazing. But if you're a small indie, it's, you know, how do you, how do you tackle that when you're just trying to get your, your game done on a, on a very small budget? So I think you've got to pick your battles. You've got to, um, you, you know, kind of, there's, there's some things you can think about, like, for example, um, you know, if you're trying to convey something with color, uh, that may not necessarily work for colorblind users, right? So you have to convey something, not just like a different state, like let's say you've got a button or an icon, you've got two different versions of it, they're different colors. And one means one thing and one means the other thing. Um, you can, you have to also think about maybe the shape of the icon because then you have to think that somebody may not necessarily be able to perceive that. There's actually apps on my phone. Uh, it's one of them's called CV, CV Simulator. And that will, you can do that and you can just look through your camera and it can show you what this looks like for the, the three most common types of colorblindness. And then you could look at your screen and be like, okay, does this still, if I'm a person that has 
deuterotinopia. I'm probably totally butchering that, but uh, if you have one of the forms of colorblindness, like what does it look like for you, for that type of person? So, you know, that that's something that you can do that you can think about. Um, other things are, you know, thinking about font scaling, um, thinking so that, you know, if you have a layout that, you know, that's becoming very common because you have people, I mean, you and I, we got both got glasses and our, our eyes aren't getting any younger. Um, so, you, you know, it's just like things like that to make the user experience work for people so that they can actually read things uh, are really important. Contrast ratios are also super important. You don't want to make sure you have like light gray on dark gray text or vice versa. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's literally dozens of different dimensions that you, you could talk about and explore for how to make your game more accessible. Um, and really just what I talked about here is just really the tip of the iceberg. So it's definitely a field that is evolving a lot in games and, and for the good. Um, because I, I think it's really awesome that like we're, we're, we're making games more accessible to the broadest possible audience. And, and one of the things I think is super important to keep in mind that accessible UX is good UX for everybody. So you, you might think that you're making changes to your game and they're only gonna appeal to some unknown part of your uh, audience or your community. But I, I believe that that's, it'll just make the UX better for everybody if you invest the time in it. All right, so I have about a million questions now based on the fact that you know blind people can play Madden when mm -hmm. I suck at Madden and I can, you know, see. How do you know if your receiver is open what, what do they put in there to to help with the accessibility? I'm just I curious. Mean, it, it prob I mean, I've seen kind of, I haven't played Madden with some of these menu narration options on. Uh, I, you know, I've, it's more just when you're kind of navigating through the front end or what we call the shell, you know, like the menus and, and getting into the game. But I would assume that, you know, that, and here's the thing, blindness is not like a binary thing. It's not like you're completely 100% blind or you're uh, completely sighted. It's like varying degrees of it, right? So blind people may still be able to, or people who might be considered legally blind, they can still perceive, you know, shapes or colors on the screen. They just may be very, very blurry. Um, there's a, uh, I'll have to dig up a, a link uh, for, um, there's links on YouTube that you can see that will, demonstrate, hey, this is what like Fortnite looks like to a blind gamer um, and or somebody who's considered legally blind. So I would assume that it's like, hey, they can still perceive shapes. And that's why the contrast ratios are so important so that they can still, you know, perceive like players uniforms on the green field um, and things like that. Um, and but just being able to kind of like have a narrator that says, hey, if you press this button, this will happen. Um, and giving people the options that they can customize it so that they can, you know, make the narrator talk faster, things like that. Like that, I would assume without having the firsthand knowledge of actually playing Madden with the narrator on is that's how something like that would, would work. I mean, and, and I just, you know, tend to suck at Madden anyway. So I'm just sitting there going, that's, that's absolutely amazing. So our, our good friend Tara, who has been leading up the accessibility conferences and things for years and she's now over at Microsoft. She gave a talk several years ago talking about how accessibility changes to UI and UX actually have a lot of benefits to people who don't necessarily need them. And you mentioned mm -hmm. Fortnite and it's a fantastic example because, you know, especially now that we don't have to build anything, there's a bunch of old people like me coming back in to play Fortnite with our kids. And my son was watching and he's like, why don't you have the um, audio indicators turned on? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he like flips through my menu and turns on. And now all of a sudden, you know, it, it's built for, for the deaf community. But now all of a sudden the footsteps and shit have directional arrows on my screen. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. So, I mean, there is a lot of value that goes into planning ahead for these sorts of things beyond accessibility itself, which is a fantastic, you know, calls in the first place. Um, yeah. All right. So if you are out there, you've got questions about UX, UI, drop them in chat, pop them in the podcast questions forum on the discord and Dan will migrate them over. So where do you have to factor in? You posed this question. And so I'm going to, to bounce it back to you. 
When it comes down to localization and certification and getting past all the storefronts worldwide on all the different platforms and all the different stores, how does that factor in? What are the, you know, some of the best ways that you can plan ahead and, and implement that stuff? Yeah, that is a, a very daunting concept because there's literally, you know, stacks of, you know, certification guidelines that you have to go through. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're lucky enough to have QA testers on your game, they're, they're usually the people that go through that. Um, let's start with the localization bit first, because um, the localization stuff is, is super important because you want to make sure that when you release your game, that you've got the broadest possible reach and to maximize the return on your, on your time and investment that you've spent creating the game. Um, so, Number one rule is you want to make sure you have a localization solution set up early in the project. And by that, I mean, like, you want to make sure that there's a database, spreadsheet, some sort of backend or tool where you've got, like, um, you know, you've got a, a key name, which is like a variable name. So instead of saying, like, let's say you've got, like, a title screen, you've got the name of the game. And instead of putting, instead of hard coding, your name of your game, literally in English, in the title screen, in your game's UI, your game's UI should refer to this database. Um, and the database has a variable name that will have the name of your game's, uh, name your game in English, in Spanish, in French, Italian, German, Portuguese, Russian, Polish, Japanese, however many languages that you choose to localize in. Um, because the thing is, if you don't do that, early on what's going to happen is you're going to have a bunch of like hard-coded text that you're just like hey trying to get it in really quickly because you're you know you're strapped for time and resources um but what you're kind of doing is you're kind of you know you know curtailing your title's chances for broader success and reaching broader markets so i would say that's actually really crucial is make sure you're not doing hard-coded text early on that you've got a data a localization database uh, because once you do have a localization database and you're and you're referring to the, the, the kind of variable string name rather than the literal text then you can that opens you up to like hey i can find a localization vendor and they can translate my game into whatever language that i want um and that again it's all about kind of going back to accessibility right it's like being in somebody's own language you're meeting the user on their own terms and reducing the barriers to entry. So in some ways, it is a form of accessibility, having your game uh, localized. Um, my, my general rule of thumb, too, is when you're like laying out screens, is if you put like, you know, hey, at the top, I've got a title of like, this might be inventory, right? Um, and maybe over here, you've got, you know, all the things that you're in your inventory, or, or maybe it's like a multiplayer lobby. And it's just like, here's my friends. And here's, here's who's playing right now. Um, you want to make sure that you always offer padding, like 30% is my rough rule of thumb, uh, padding on the width that you're allocating for that text string to live because um, German or Swedish will always be like this huge string that if you don't plan for that or don't have your UI implemented in a responsive way, you'll start just having things overlap with each other and it'll just look really messy and unorganized and um, so those are just with regards to localization. Those are kind of really my my two rules of thumb. That uh, if there's anything that you get from this talk, take take away that. So. Sign up today for the Indie Game Business Newsletter. It's a weekly source of business news curated for indie dev teams. We've got discounts on all Indie Game Business events and events from all of our partners. You get a first look at the summaries and takeaways from all of our podcasts. There are exclusive opportunities for promotions and early access to new tools for development, monetization, and more. Check it out. Sign up. PowellGroupConsulting.com slash publisher dash list.
that was always it, it's good to know that that rule hasn't changed our rule was always mm -hmm. plan for german plan and for german that way and i'm learning a little bit of german on like duo leo but duolingo but the funniest thing was we, my wife and i were watching old episodes of 30 rock and on that mm -hmm. show you know tina Fey's character every now and then starts speaking german and she was mm -hmm. having a conversation and she spoke for like six seconds and the translation at the bottom just said exactly and it's like yes that's german in many ways there is just a whole lot of letters and a whole lot of words that go into something very simple so if you plan for that i hadn't heard swedish though but i mean that would make sense too um yep. Dan, we've got questions coming in. So, all right. First off, what are some important things to think of in a UX and UI for a solo game dev that knows nothing about it? So we, I think we kind of talked about this earlier, but definitely making sure that you're doing some user testing. Um, you know, I, my, like I think the goal that any game that you know, a game's UX should aspire to is to be invisible, right? It's like if people are complaining about your menus and your 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 layout and your UX or this thing that they have to do frequently is such a chore. It's lots of, lots of busy work. Like UX doesn't want to call attention to itself. It really just you know wants to remove friction. And if you've done your job, people won't complain about the menus or or the user experience. They'll find other things in the game to complain about. So I think that as a solo dev. Like that's like, make sure that you're testing, make sure that you're validating um, your layouts. Um, you know, like I said, there's these prototyping tools that you can, you know, test out a screen or a flow like Adobe XD and Figma, and they offer free trials for it as well. And the, the, the learning curves on them are, are not steep at all. They're very, you know, you'd imagine like a tool that's made for making UX should have good UX, right? Figure, <laughs> figure. Um, but, uh, you know, they're great tools for prototyping and testing your ideas out really quickly and cheaply. And they're designed for sharing. Um, so you can share it with your community. You can pair that up with a survey and boom, you can get all sorts of feedback from things without touching a line of code. So for me, it's just like narrow down your unknowns uh, and your ambiguities as early as possible. Because once you start trying to figure things out in code, that's when it gets time consuming and expensive and hard. So do not do that. Like, you know, if you're going to try your hand at UX UI, like get one of these tools, read up about, you know, psychological principles, like laws of UX is a great website that just kind of has like a lot of like uh, psychological heuristics or principles that can guide like how users think when they're trying to process information, like, um, you know, and, and leverage people in your network or in your community to be like, hey, look, I've got like three different variations of the screen. You know, uh, I think people in the community love having that sort of participatory aspect of it. Like they love being able to contribute their thoughts and give feedback and knowing that they're, you know, giving a, making a positive impact and, and co-collaborating your game with you. So I, I think that would be a, a great approach for like as a solo dev, like, and you're trying to tackle UX, UI, um, you know, look into those types of solutions and those processes. And, and don't reinvent the wheel. Don't reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Go to go to Game UI database or and, and go look at what other games are doing. And just the other thing too, this I mentioned laws of UX. Like one of one of the things that they have on that site is like it, it's like users will most likely want to use the patterns that they're most familiar with with other websites. Just take out websites and put games in there. You know, and it's like if you're making a first person game, like there's kind of pretty common known patterns now for how your gamepad mapping should be. Right. So just piggyback on what what's working. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But find the areas that you can innovate in and do something different and, and specialize in that to kind of make your game stand out. But make sure that whatever it is that your hook or your differentiator is, make sure you user test it so that it's you know, you know that it's connecting with your audience and meeting their expectations uh, in, in a satisfactory way. But make sure that you're doing the quantitative research as well, because your Discord community is actually going to be a very small percentage of your actual players. And so make sure you get real data. All right. So the next question that came up, what is your favorite UX in a game? And it can't be a game that you worked on. 
Oh man, that's I hate these types of questions because I'm always like I'm always looking at so many different types of games, and a lot of times the games that I play in my free time are um, you know very different from what I'm usually working on. So um, you know, I would have to say that um, the you know the one that I keep coming back to is uh, the Dirt franchise. Um, that I haven't really played the games very much, but I've seen a lot of their user interfaces and geez, they are just hot. <laughs> I mean, like if you guys look it up online, like, like they are just slick. And that's kind of where that sort of like UI aspect, that emotional aspect comes into it because, you know, you know, even just like the, like the title screen where you're just like selecting from a list. That's all it is. It's just, you know, a list of things. But with their like with their title screen, it's like all the text is in 3D and the car is like driving in slow motion in the background. And there's a metal polished floor, and you can see like the reflection of your highlighted text in 3D in in the metal floor. And it's just like, you know, people that put that much attention to detail and those first impressions they're just nailing it, you know? Like if you turn on a, like a racing game like Dirt and you see that they've got that much attention to detail just in a simple list, I, I mean, to me, that shows like like real quality uh, in terms of execution. Now, again, it's very easy to, this goes back to another laws of UX, it's very easy to fall in love with a game just based on the look and the animations and the sizzle and the emotion, right? Um, there's a, there's a cognitive bias called the aesthetic usability effect. Um, and it's one of my favorites because what, what it basically says is that like people have a bias towards if they see something that's pretty, they automatically assume that it's usable, right? Because it's appealing to them. So they're already like the barriers to entry have lowered. Ooh, look, it's pretty shiny. And they may that may lead them to overlook like genuine usability things that that people may struggle with. So, um, you know, so in terms of like what game has the best UX, I mean, that's, or one of my favorites, I mean, you know, I, I'm not immune from the aesthetic usability effect either. So, uh, but, but I would just say like any game where it feels like that you're not struggling with the menus and it's just effortless and the things that you want to do, you can find them quickly and intuitively without a lot of fiddling about. Like to me, that that that's a sign that it has good UX. It, it's in fact just invisible, you know, or frictionless. All right. So where should ad hoc or casual user research stop and professional user research start? How should teams decide to insource or outsource a dedicated user researcher? Great question. I think that depends when you're considering doing research, whether you're going to do it internally, like guerrilla research is what I call it, or what it's commonly called, or if you're going to engage like a vendor or an external, um, you know, researcher, the things that you have to ask yourself is what are the questions that we're trying to answer? Like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve by engaging somebody externally? And it may depend on the magnitude of the problem that you're trying to solve. If it's a really like kind of existential feature of your game um, and, you know, maybe you tried doing the internal guerrilla research or internally on your team, there's no consensus on how this feature should be. Because believe me, there's like the thing that's both interesting, but also challenging about UX design in games is that everybody's got an opinion about it. Like everybody's just like, oh, that's how that's gonna show up on the screen. I've got something to say about that, sir. So, um, you know, and sometimes that just leads to a lot of very subjective opinions going back and forth. So being able to kind of, that's where the, the research part is really important because you've got to realize that you're a business, you're making a product for a customer. So you've got to leverage that in. So you're, you're using that to inform um, your process. Um, I would say if there's one, I'm going to bring out a book that I love. Um, if there's one form of user research that a small team can do and can do it sustainably, it's this, this protocol here outlined in the Rocket Surgery Made Easy book by Steve Krug. 
Uh, Steve Krug also did another uh, book called uh, Don't Make Me Think, which I think is an awesome <laughs> philosophy for UX. It's just like, don't make me think, right? Um, so this basically describes how like a small team can get really valuable insights just by doing usability testing with three people. And it's not quantitative data, it's qualitative data, but ultimately like, you know, that's really important just to get somebody who has never seen the game before to sit down in front of your game and to interact with it and start talking about their thoughts. I have seen it time and again and again and again throughout my career that when people on your team are watching this, their assumptions about how something should be just melt away. And suddenly it's like light bulbs go off in their head because they'll be like looking at a screen and they'll be like, why aren't they clicking the damn button? Why aren't they clicking it? What's wrong with you? And then they suddenly realize, oh crap, it's because the UX is bad or there's something about the UI and they're just not seeing it. It's effectively invisible because of where they put it on the screen or other things that are competing for user attention. Like user attention is so fragile. It's so easy to distract people from what they're focusing on just by something flashing here or, you know, maybe you got a notification on your phone or your dog is barking or, you know what I mean? Like it, user, user attention is so fragile and it has to be very carefully maintained and, and, and cared for. So, um, you know, so in terms of like, I, I think you can get valuable insights by, um, you know, getting as few as three people to sit down, play your game. Um, but I would also be cautious about relying too much on internal develop. Like I, I would balance internal like feedback from people on your team um, with external people that have never played the game. Cause it's very convenient and easy to say like, Hey, I'm just going to get somebody who's on my team or I'm going to get, you know, a, a buddy uh, of mine or somebody in my family to play test my game. And that's great. And that can be useful, but keep in mind that these people are biased, you know, People on your team, they've been looking at this game for months, maybe years. Uh, so they have lost their subjectivity. Um, uh, or rather, no, they have their subjectivity. They've lost their objectivity because they've been seeing it day in, day out. Uh, same with your family and friends. Maybe they've never seen it. They've only heard about it. But your family and friends, they love you. They Hopefully they love you. Um, <laughs> they, they, they want to see you do well, you know. So they're going to be like, oh, hurt his feelings so that's okay timmy that's good yeah that works for me they're not really users will lie to you they will absolutely lie to you in user testing so that's why it's make sure you gotta you know, think about like how can you best learn about biases learn about psychology cognitive biases and um because everybody's got them it's how we process and deal with reality and they will sit seep into your user testing so you'll never completely uh, eliminate it it's just about mitigating it as best you can we frequently talk about the fact that you can't trust your friends and family when it comes down to testing and feedback because your mother will always think you're a good singer, yeah. regardless of any sort of fact around that. Yeah. So, all right, what's, what's next, Dan? All right, so how do you get into entry UX and UI? It sounds like for indies, it's one of those situations where it gets wrapped up as part of other roles. So if this is somewhere that you want to go or you want to learn about the industry, where should you start? Great question. Um, I mean, I mean, I kind of fell into it because I was working on a project, one of the Metal Honor games, and nobody was available to do it. So I just did it, you know? And so I think on in, indie teams or smaller teams, people tend to wear a lot of more hats. So I think, and, and many of the games that I've worked on, I, I've continued to do it because there was just nobody else on the team you know, I might have gotten hired as a level designer or, uh, you know, lead multiplayer designer, and there was nobody else on the team that was available to do it. So either I gravitated towards it because I had kind of developed a passion for it, or I knew that nobody else on the team was going to do it. And so because a lot of designers, they want to do like cool, hot and sexy things on games. They want to do combat design. They want to do level design. Uh, you know, the, 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 the stat heads or the math nerds, they want to do systems design, right? But UX, UI is it's almost kind of commoditized, right? Like it's sort of like, because like I said, if you're doing your job, it's invisible. It's frictionless, right? You don't even think about it. You don't latch on to it. Uh, it's, it's a means to an end, right? Um, so I think for, for indies to get into it, like look for those opportunities on the, on the team, push for user testing. If people are struggling with things, 
Like take the initiative like, that you find from user testing, ideally with people that are not your family or friends. Um, take, take the initiative and say, hey, look, uh, I, I've been reading, read about UX. Uh, you know, there's, there's books out there, UX for games. Um, you know, read about it and be like, hey, I'd like to try to take a crack at it. And, and you know, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, ways that you could learn about it. I mean, there's, you could pursue pr professional certification things, but, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, a lot of people in this industry, they, they learn on the job. They learn as you go. Um, it's certainly been true for me. Like I, I've known people who have, they just started out in QA and then they started doing UI art, you know, and then, and then they, now they're doing UX as well. So, um, you know, it's just a lot of it's just about like being perceptive to opportunities or gaps on your team and showing some initiative and some willingness to, to step up and uh, to try to take a crack at it, you know, so. I don't know. I, if you want to do it, if you want to do it for the bigger, the big companies, um, you know, I, I still see varying degrees of like, you know, people are hiring for UX, UI people. That that distinction is still it's becoming clearer, but it's still people try to like, hey, we just need somebody to worry about the interface and like, oh, they can do both the UX and the UI. Um, bigger teams have the luxury of separating those roles out. Um, so, but I, I think that like. I still think those those methods of getting in, like you start as a tester, or you know, or, or maybe it's just like you know, you 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 know, there's all sorts of freelance methods to to getting your way into games. You know, like people are posting jobs on you know Upwork and elsewhere, um, you know, part time, and and you know, even on some of these Discord channels like like yours, you know, people are looking for jobs and collabor collaboration. Like, there's so many more possibilities now than there was when you and I got started. Uh, especially in the age of, of remote working that we now all live in. Like you can get jobs from anywhere in the world now. So there's just so many ways in. So it's, it's in that in that regard, it's, it's really exciting. I, I literally have a friend of mine who is a UX designer over at Epic who started out in QA. Because, yeah. I mean, it is. It, it's a lot of things now, even like the most basic level, Everybody, everybody wants to have a, you know, a game design degree in their curriculum at these colleges and universities, but things like the business and the marketing and the UI and UX, they tend to get like over, over, just glaze over and, and no one hits it up. So, yeah. it's all right, next. Let's keep on. Oh. Um, how do you get testers for your UX prototypes as a small indie? And then how do you filter that feedback towards making meaningful changes? And that second part is extremely important where where do you put the weight sure um i think the, a good rule of thumb is to be data informed not data driven you know because ultimately the testing leads to a discussion with your team you know or as a solo dev it's like okay i've got to figure out like how much of this should i respond to and that i mean without kind of looking at a specific example that can be really challenging uh, I would say, you know, leverage your community. If you've got a community on Discord or if you're on like early access or itch.io, like, you know, like leverage, leverage the power of numbers. Um, you know, get a survey out there, ask some quant a mix of quantitative and qualitative questions. Um, and, you know, because if you have the statistical validity, if you've just got like, hey, look, my 18 out of 20 people feel this way, then it's a no brainer. Then it's just like, okay, well, you know, that's, I, I should be, you know, following what, what that's saying. You know, if you've got like only like 10 people, then it's harder to kind of say, Hey, that's statistically valid because you really need a, a volume of people in order for trends to start to emerge, uh, reliable trends, you know? And if you got something that's split 50, 50, then it's like, okay, well then you could probably go either way, or maybe you need a little thought, more thought. Maybe you need to complete the alternative approach that you didn't put forward in your uh, A-B testing. A-B testing is another way that you can kind of like, hey, I, I have this version of a screen or a flow, and then I have the B version, and you split your group of testers into two. You know, Maybe you only share one prototype link with one group and the other prototype link with the other group, and then you compare and contrast like the results from the different, if you can't decide between one or the other. That's also another tool or technique that you could use. So, um, but ultimately, you know, 
you it's up it's your game you know you've, you've got to like kind of take that information that you get and decide what are the changes that you want to make in response to it so um but um yeah so that that's kind of how i would I, how i would approach it we're, if we get any more coming in today, we've got about five more minutes here. So if you've got questions in there, pop them in chat real quick. We'll, we'll get them answered. But then Edward's also on the Discord server too. So if you have questions later on, or if you're listening to this later on, you know, feel free, feel free to ping and find out. So uh, Lloyd says, have you played around with many VR menus? And are you impressed by any of them? Oh, for sure. Uh, <clears throat> for me, the gold standard for VR is Job Simulator. So uh, I don't, Jay, have you played it or? Oh, yeah. oh yes, yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Love yeah. that game. And Vacation yeah. Simulator. And Vacation Simulator, yeah, yeah Vacation Simulator now. Um, yeah, for me, that's the gold standard. Um, I, I, I talk about this a lot when I'm giving talks about VR and AR, but um, it's like a lot of VR interfaces, it's very easy just to kind of make floating rectangles, right? Because rectangles are what we're familiar with. Our TVs are rectangular, our desktops are rectangular, our phones are rectangular, right? So, um, you know, it's a pattern that people are very familiar with. And there's nothing wrong with rectangles in in um, VR, but they don't engage the spatial aspect of it that is kind of the, the key differentiator with VR. So for me, like a game like Job Simulator, or Vacation Simulator, where you're actually reaching out and you're grabbing objects and you're, you know, pushing levers up and down and you're pulling cranks. And my favorite one is the continue or the, 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 quit, the quit burrito, right? You want to quit. And then like a burrito pops in your hand and you eat the burrito and it says, are you sure inside the, inside the burrito, right? Like that's, that's just absurd and brilliant at the same time. Um, you know, like there's so much opportunities for novelty and innovation in that space, but really like to, we talked earlier about how UX has been a thing outside of games for a really long time. Um, to really like take advantage of VR, like you have to look at how spatial experiences happen in real life. Like think about driving in your car. Your car is a spherical user experience. You know, everything is ergonomically arrayed around you in kind of like a, or maybe not spherical, but like at least a 180 degree bubble hemisphere in front of you. Um, so, you know, your, your, your window controls are lower priority. Those are off in the periphery, you know, like things on your dashboard are important things, speed and speed and gas, like they're right in front of you. Um, you know, so, uh, all that's an example of a, uh, spatial user experience. Uh, think about just like architecture, like the exp user experience of getting, taking a, a vacation like driving to the airport, getting checking your luggage, going to the gate, getting on the plane. Think about all the signs and information that's provided along the way for that and how the architecture of the airport is trying to guide you to where you need to go. You know, how, how do they use lighting? How do they use the shape of the room? Um, all of these things are, you know, we can borrow the rules from real world industrial design, architecture, ergonomics, and apply that thinking into our virtual user experience design to really take advantage of the, uh, the amazing possibilities of an artificial reality. Um, you know, you can always go back to rectangles, that's safe, but it's not really taking advantage of what the medium is good at. Oh, right, so, oh, oh, I, oh, wait, I wanna comment on something. Ar architecture, uh -oh. there's many, 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 many buildings that have a, an architectural user experience flaw. Many, 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 many. Do you know mm -hmm. what that is? It's the door that has a metal plate and a handle, but you can only push the door. Oh God, you should read Design of Everyday Things. If people <laughs> want to get into UX, you should read Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. It's a classic. I don't have it on my bookshelf. If I went off camera, I could go get it. But you will never look at doorknobs the same way again mm -hmm. after you read that book. It's just- that, That's just like every time I, I see that- I never noticed that. Hmm. Oh, there's so many. But now okay. it's going to be like, I won't be able to unsee it. And that will that's be what happened. infuriating that's to what... me. So well, there's yeah. one more question, Jay, if we can get to it. Okay. Hey, we asked what your favorite UI UX was. Now tell us about your least favorite. <laughs> you don't have to name it. It would be cool if you did, but let's hear your least favorite UI. And I know there uh -huh. is one. There's one that you're like, oh, I hate. I don't like this. 
Can, can I say mine while Edward's thinking? Yeah. Can you say what? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. Oh, what wait. I said I'll allow it. <laughs> the fact that the Nintendo controller's primary button are completely opposite of the Xbox and PlayStation and basically every other controller out there. That drives me absolutely batshit crazy. I will say one. It's not a game, but it's utility-related games. Uh, I'm super into retro gaming, and I've been playing around with RetroArch recently. Uh, oh my god, I just it's 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 a it's a double face palm. I'm just like it is really the learning curve is steep. The organization is poor. The naming of function like they don't give enough feedback for what certain things do and these are really obscure named things like you know trilinear filter you know or you know like uh enable enable d input vibration on controller three it's like really technical stuff and it's just like that i, I it's a very powerful thing for you know emulation purposes but Holy crap, do they need to UX designer badly on that? There are several things that I could think of that have the same, and that's what we usually refer to as UX UI designed by the engineers. It yes. works. Engineer UI. Yeah, it, it absolutely works. Does exactly, but no one outside of the people that actually made it understand what the hell it is. So, yeah. He had a company called This Controller Sucks. And he made a controller for me that was just like a long thing and it had buttons, right? And so like you're supposed to map like the first button to the up, then the third button to the right, the fourth button, and then you're supposed to play games with it. Oh yeah. man, that's like playing Dark Souls with a with a, a guitar, with a guitar, <laughs> guitar <laughs> right? You know, it's possible. People, I've seen it on online. Right, so that's crazy. All right. right, so we're gonna pop this last question, then we're gonna let Edward go. How can we prototype a tower defense game? Very uh, specific. The first thing that springs into my mind is Unity. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, the thing is with like a lot of some of these prototyping tools, it could be you could prototype aspects of it, but like a tower defense game, you've got to get like the you know the units coming in, and some of those things might be depending on the prototyping tool, you might need a more robust prototyping tool than things like Figma or XD because they do have their limits, you know, you don't have to touch code. Other prototyping tools, I think like um, there's a lot of them out there, like uh, Proto.io is coming to mind. They have like conditional logic, which is like if this, then that um, type of things. Um, I, and I could be totally misquoting that. There's probably other solution. Framer is another one that I think has some more robust tools for kind of pseudo coding type things that might help you get closer to prototyping that. But honestly, like my, my immediate reaction would be just like, just, just get started with unity and, and tinker with that. I mean, I know it's, you know, you're starting to get into coding and that can be tough, but you know, to try to simulate it, it, it depends on what part of the tower defense game that you're trying to prototype, you know? Um, so it, that's kind of a really hard, Hard question to answer, unfortunately. And don't like do a bunch, of, just do everything with circles, right? Or squares or whatever, right? Prototype with circles and squares. I knew a company, they were doing a, a an RTS game, but they like, they like fully designed the levels and the characters and the animation and then like design, tried to design the flow. And I'm like, you guys are just like, that's a waste of time. Because yeah. what do if you don't like the level or the unit, you got to scrap it all. Yeah, do it when it's ugly and cheap. You know, don't do it after you've hired a, a animator or asset artist for three months to work on your characters. You know, it's like, you know, kind of prioritize your unknowns, like reduce that pile of unknowns, you know, test early, test often, you know, figure out what's working and what's not as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Edward, thank you so much. I appreciate the insights today. And, you know, like I said, always a pleasure to, you know, talk to another one of us who've been doing this longer than we should have. But yes. Dan. Guys. Pleasure. Honored to thank be here. Thank you, Tripwire Presents, for sponsoring the show. Amazing. Uh, make sure to follow us on Discord, discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. And also you can watch this video on YouTube, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Um, only fan. Wait, no, not there. You can't watch it there. I don't tell uh, everybody about my only fans account, Dan. Jeez, man. That was you like baseball hats. Yeah. There you go. go to <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. We appreciate each and every one of you. Everyone have an amazing and blessed weekend. 
Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.